to the DC Debrief for Friday, August 18th, 2023. I'm your host, John Stolness, and coming up, another Trump indictment, this one in Georgia. What's next for the former president? White House correspondent Abigail Robertson joins me to talk about some surprising comments that she got from Republican voters in the 2024 presidential race at last weekend's Iowa State Fair, plus her interview with former Vice President Mike Pence. The Inflation Reduction Act, one year later, we'll get into that, and the Federal Trade Commission is warning Americans to watch out for these certain scams. All that coming up on this edition of the DC Debrief. But just a friendly reminder, everybody, that if you wouldn't mind telling a friend or a family member about this fine podcast, it would help a lot and uh, would keep people well informed, I think, of what's going on here in the nation's capital. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeart, pretty much wherever you get your podcasts. And uh, if you wouldn't mind leaving a five-star rating and a review over at Apple Podcasts, if you get a chance, that would help the podcast grow. But please, let's spread the word about the DC Debrief. I believe this is one of the few places on the InterGoogle where you will be able to get the straight news that you need to know about. All right, with that out of the way, let's get to the debrief for this week. Georgia on my mind. This week, former President Trump was indicted for a fourth time, this time in Georgia, on a RICO charge that accuses him and his lawyers, as well as associates, of conspiring to throw out Georgia's election results claiming the election was corrupt, and for trying to replace legally appointed electors with alternate electors. CBN News reporter Caitlin Burke has more. Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis has led a multi-year investigation into allegations of election interference. They were sparked in part by a phone call from then-President Trump. In it, he appeared to pressure Georgia's Secretary of State to find the votes needed to win back the White House. Specifically, the participants in association took various actions in Georgia and elsewhere to block the counting of the votes of the presidential electors. The 97-page indictment includes 13 new felony charges against Trump and 41 charges overall, including solicitation of violation of oath by a public officer, engaging in a conspiracy to replace public officials with fake electors, and plotting to tamper with voting machines. Trump called the prosecuting DA corrupt and accused her of stalling her investigation, writing, quote, why didn't they indict two and a half years ago? Because they wanted to do it right in the middle of my political campaign, witch hunt. Trump allies on Capitol Hill once again coming to his defense. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy tweeting, quote, Americans see through this desperate sham. It's the fourth indictment handed down against the former president, including federal charges related to his handling of classified documents after leaving the White House and federal charges of an alleged scheme to overturn the 2020 election. One of the others indicted in this case, former Trump lawyer and New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani said he did nothing wrong. I'm going to cooperate and show what criminals they are and what they're doing to our Constitution and how they're destroying it and how they are a disgrace to my profession. That's what I'm going to cooperate with. The woman Trump ran against in 2016, former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, appeared on MSNBC just minutes after the indictments were handed down. I don't feel any satisfaction. I feel great, uh, you know, just just great profound sadness that uh, we have a former president who has been indicted uh, for so many uh, charges that went right to the heart of whether or not 
our democracy would survive. So how is this indictment different than the three that came before it? Well, if Donald Trump does become president, if he does win the 2024 election and then is later convicted in this Georgia case, he cannot pardon himself because he is not being charged with federal crimes. These are state crimes. So at the state level, Georgia is one of two states in the country in which the governor does not have pardon power. That is left up to a five-person board. As I mentioned, there have been four indictments now. Donald Trump charged with 91 crimes in these four criminal cases. Of course, the prosecution has to prove that Donald Trump, at least as part of this latest indictment with the RICO charge, that uh, Donald Trump was orchestrating all of these things. And um, it'll be interesting to see what kind of evidence a jury needs to hear in order to say that, yes, Donald Trump was indeed the head, the director, the mastermind behind what they say is a criminal enterprise to overturn the 2020 results in Georgia. Now, what does this mean for the president moving forward here in the 2024 elections? Well, almost two-thirds of Republicans in a new Associated Press NORC poll that was conducted just before the Georgia indictments came down, 63% of Republicans say they want Trump to run for president again. So that is with three indictments having already been handed down just before the fourth one, but reading the tea leaves, I would imagine most people who took part in this poll knew that Georgia indictments were coming down. That is up eight points since April, just prior to the first of his four indictments. Seven in 10 Republicans now say they have a favorable opinion of Trump that is up from six in 10 two months ago. However, while the, while the president's popularity among the base remains stronger than ever, a total of 64% of Americans either say they definitely will not or probably will not support Trump in 2024. The poll indicating that while Donald Trump appears to have a lot of support among Republicans here in the primary, that the numbers could look very differently if he does become the Republican nominee once the general election rolls around. Now, Fulton County District Attorney Willis submitted a proposed pretrial scheduling order this week. She's asking for the trial to begin on March 4th of next year. That's just one day before the Super Tuesday primaries. Now, one more little twist to this story. President Trump had announced on Tuesday on a Truth Social media post that he was going to hold a major news conference and release what he called an irrefutable report on the 2020 election in Georgia. However, in a Truth Social post Thursday evening, Trump has canceled Monday's event and said the report would not be released that day either. In that post, he said, quote, rather than releasing the report on the rigged and stolen Georgia 2020 presidential election on Monday, my lawyers would prefer putting this, I believe, irrefutable and overwhelming evidence of election fraud and irregularities in formal legal filings. Therefore, the news conference is no longer necessary. So the Trump event scheduled for Bedminster on Monday has been canceled and the report that he was planning to make public will instead not be released on Monday. Inflation Reduction Act one year later. In the year since the passage of what many say is an ill-named law, including the president himself, he doesn't, he regrets the name, the economy finds itself a mixed bag. Both parties really do have a good story to tell here as we really, as this presidential election season kicks into, into gear. Democrats can point to a number of macroeconomic metrics uh, that policymakers care about. So we're talking about unemployment. We're talking about prices. We're talking about growth. All of those trending in the right direction, which 
allowing for some ups and downs in the economy, of course, um, seems to be headed in the right direction. Investment in new factories is way up. Consumer sentiment has improved recently. And economists now, they were calling for a recession here in 2023. You're seeing a lot of those a lot of those doom and gloom worries about a recession in 2023 fading away. So President Biden has been going around the country touting Bidenomics, and he's been pointing to these different portions of the economy to argue that he is the right man to lead the country moving forward, that his economic policies are working. Republicans, on the, underhand, on the other hand, still point to inflation, which has been brutal these last two years. Prices are still up over last year, uh, higher than the 2% number that the Federal Reserve wants. Uh, they're still, it's over 3.2%. The pandemic era boom in social welfare funding is no longer there. So there has been an increase, a huge increase in food insecurity and homelessness over the last year. Uh, so Republicans are pointing to those numbers, but they're specifically pointing to inflation uh, and the fact that prices are still sky high for many different things. Republicans can also point to some areas lurking in the background that are potential hazards. Um, you've got the commercial real estate uh, business, a 20, a $20 trillion commercial real estate sector is completely up in the air with more people working from home and inner cities, um, big cities, uh, even suburbs. Their you know, commercial property is just not selling because we are we are all working from home a little bit more. No one is really sure if the Federal Reserve is going to keep rates steady or if they're going to hike rates again in the fall and in the winter. And of course, the federal deficit is something that worries conservatives. Um, and it's one of the reasons that uh, Fitch uh, downgraded the U.S. credit rating. Um, because they are expecting a, quote, fiscal deterioration over the next three years. So again, both sides have a story to tell here. The president talked about the one-year anniversary of the Inflation Reduction Act and its accomplishments at the White House on Wednesday. Delivering on promises that have long been made to the American people to lower costs for families, especially health care costs, increase America's energy security, restore fairness to a tax code, create good-paying jobs here in America and to address the existential threat of climate crisis. The Inflation Reduction Act is giving people more breathing room, as my dad would say, and it's supercharging the economic transition in key ways. Critics have argued this law really should have never been named the Inflation Reduction Act because at its core, this bill was one that was designed really to address a whole bunch of different economic factors all across the economic spectrum. It was never really designed to specifically reduce inflation. Even the president admits he shouldn't have called it the Inflation Reduction Act. He made those comments speaking to supporters in Utah earlier this week. The Inflation Reduction Act cost $740 billion and while inflation has dropped from 9% a year ago to 3.2% in July, as I mentioned, it's still well above the 2% the two year-over-year number that the Fed wants. And we're likely to be stuck in this lower 3% range for a little while. It does seem to many voters as if the legislation hasn't done what its title says it was going to do. 
Harvard University economist Jason Furman recently said that the law hasn't actually done anything to bring down inflation per se, but it has put more emphasis on provisions aimed at combating climate change and creating jobs out of climate change, as you heard, the, you know, the president had been, has been touting that, as well as lowering people's health care bills. And there are signs that the Inflation Reduction Act has helped stimulate about $500 billion in corporate announcements to invest in new factories. That's one of the things the president mentioned a moment ago. So um, the advocates of the bill will say that this has the ability to strengthen the job market despite efforts to bring down the inflation that many economists believe would pull the U.S. into a recession. And Biden is arguing, rightly so, that that recession has not materialized. So it seems as though a more politically advantageous name for the White House probably would have been something like the Recession Avoidance Act, although a recession for some time in the next year hasn't been ruled out. But the Inflation Reduction Act, one year later, has reduced inflation some, but not really had the impact on inflation that Democrats, that the president, that the bill itself would seem to indicate would make it a success. However, the president will continue to go around the country touting Bidenomics and touting the Inflation Reduction Act as being good for the overall economy, even if it hasn't had much, if any, impact on inflation. Blinken on Iran. Last Thursday, sources said Iran may free five detained U.S. citizens as part of a deal to unfreeze $6 billion in Iranian funds in South Korea. Iran did allow four detained U.S. citizens to move into house arrest from prison, and a fifth was already under home confinement. Last Friday, the Wall Street Journal reported that Iran had significantly slowed the pace at which it was accumulating near weapons-grade enriched uranium and diluted some of its stockpile, which are moves that some believe could help ease tensions with the U.S. and perhaps even revive the now-dead peace talks over Iran's nuclear program. In a briefing with reporters on Tuesday, Secretary of State Antony Blinken said that the Biden administration's overall approach to Iran has not changed even after Tehran agreed to release the American detainees to house arrest. We continue to pursue a strategy of deterrence, of pressure, and diplomacy. We remain committed to ensuring that Iran never acquires a nuclear weapon. We continue to hold the regime accountable for its human rights abuses, destabilizing actions in the region, funding of terrorism, provision of drones to Russia for its use uh, in war against Ukraine, among many other offenses. We've been clear that Iran must de-escalate to create space for future diplomacy. This development, that is the move of our detainees out of prison and to home detention, is not linked to any other aspect of our Iran policy. It is simply about our people. Under the 2015 Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action between Iran and the six major powers, Iran had agreed to curb its nuclear program in order to make it harder for it to obtain an atomic weapon, an ambition that it says it doesn't have in the first place, but uh, no one in the West really believes that, in return for relief from the U.S., European Union, and United Nations sanctions. And there has been criticism of the State Department by some who are calling the release of the $6 billion in Iranian funds a ransom payment, the highest ransom ever paid to a nation state like Iran. The State Department and White House have denied that this was a ransom payment. New guidance on college admissions. The Department of Education and the Justice Department released new guidance to colleges and universities earlier this week, helping them to navigate race considerations in admissions, including how to assess admissions essays, 
that highlight the race of a particular applicant. And this is in the wake of the Supreme Court's decision back in June, which essentially gutted affirmative action in colleges. According to the document that was sent out by the two departments, the, they, they are explaining that the Supreme Court made it clear that nothing in its opinion should be construed as prohibiting universities from considering an applicant's discussion of how race affected their life, whether it's through discrimination, inspiration, or otherwise. otherwise. And what that means is that universities may continue to welcome appropriate considerations through what, what some say is a holistic application review process. So, for example, uh, would provide opportunities to assess how an individual's background and attributes, um, including those having to do with their race, position them to contribute to the campus in a unique way. So one of the examples that the, the Justice Department and the Department of Education gave was, you know, the university could consider an applicant's explanation about what it means for him to be the first black violinist in his city's youth orchestra. Or an applicant's account of overcoming prejudice when she transferred to a rural high school where she felt where she was the only student of South Asian descent. Uh, an institution could also consider a guidance counselor or other recommenders' description of how an applicant conquered her feelings of isolation as a Latina student in an overwhelmingly white high school in order to join the debate team. And an institution could consider an applicant's discussion of how he learned to cook traditional hamang dishes from her grandmother and how that sparked her passion for food and nurtured her sense of self by connecting her to past generations of her family. These are all examples that the Department of Education and uh, the Justice Department uh, passed along to universities as a way for them to kind of see as they're reading these different documents, as they're reading these essays, the kinds of things that they are allowed to consider. But at the end of the day, as the Supreme Court ruled in their last term, colleges may not use race as a determining factor in college admissions. So this is an attempt to help colleges know how race and gender can inform their decisions while not allowing it to become a determining factor. Senator Tuberville's military holds continue. This week, the Navy joined the Army and the Marine Corps as military branches that are operating without Senate-confirmed military leaders. Now, that doesn't mean these um, these branches of the military don't have leaders. Uh, they have temporary leaders that are not Senate-confirmed. The reason? Of course, Alabama Republican Senator Tommy Tuberville's continued hold on top military promotions, unless the Defense Department reverses its position on paying for service members to travel out of state for abortions if they happen to live or they have been uh, have been appointed to serve in states where they are restricted or illegal. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin commented at a naval ceremony this week, noting just how many promotions are being held up. As you know, more than 300 nominations for our outstanding general and flag officers are now being held up in the United States Senate. That includes our top uniform leaders and our next chief of naval operations. Because of this blanket hole starting today, for the first time in the history of the Department of Defense, three of our military services are operating without Senate-confirmed leaders. This is unprecedented, it is unnecessary, and it is unsafe. And this sweeping hold is undermining America's military readiness. It's hindering our ability to retain our very best officers. And it is upending the lives of far too many American military families. On Fox News late last week, Senator Tuberville said the Senate can go forward with pushing through promotions. 
listen, I've got holds on these nominees, but they can push these nominees through one at a time. I've only got holds for groups of them at a time. I, I've got a hold on every one of them, but they can bring them one at a time to the floor. But Chuck Schumer doesn't want to work. I mean, we've been out of we've been out of session 50 days before this month, and, and now we're all on vacation for a month. They don't want to. They've got the they've got the floor, but they don't want to do any work with it. They want to just push these through. I'm not going to allow that to happen. Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer has so far declined to take this approach because of the amount of time it could take, and he's been critical of Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell for not aggressively telling Senator Tuberville to stop these holds. The Congressional Research Service estimates that if the Senate worked on only military nominations eight hours a day, it would take more than 80 days to confirm the nomination. So yes, a time-consuming and laborious process. With neither the Pentagon or Tuberville backing down at this point, the impasse does threaten to impact the nomination of General C.Q. Brown as the next chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. That is the top military officer in the country, of course. He would take over when General Mark Milley's term is up at the end of September. And so the stare-down between Senator Tuberville and the Defense Department and Democrats on Capitol Hill continues unabated. Hunter Biden latest. This week, the attorney for Hunter Biden, Christopher Clark, stepped down so he could be called as a witness to testify in defense of Hunter Biden. This all comes in the wake of the collapse of the plea agreement that Clark and Delaware prosecutor David Weiss agreed to that would have seen Hunter Biden plead guilty to two tax fraud charges, as well as a charge that he falsified paperwork that he filled out when he was purchasing a gun. Uh, Clark is likely to be called on to testify if this case goes to trial about the plea agreement that they reached with Weiss his office. As a result of the breakdown of this plea agreement, Weiss asked Attorney General Merrick Garland to give him special counsel status, which Garland has now granted. Republicans say this doesn't change much, and they have criticized Weiss being named as the special counsel. On Sunday, Hunter Biden told a judge that the Justice Department was trying to renege on their deal and is asking this new judge to enforce it. And she could make a ruling on that as soon as next Tuesday. That could potentially hold off any indictment from Weiss or a potential trial. With negotiations to revive the plea seemingly at a standstill between the Justice Department and Hunter Biden, uh, Justice is expecting the case to go to trial. Uh, the two sides had been hoping to come to some kind of an agreement, but that does not look like that's going to happen. And prosecutors say it's being held up due to Hunter Biden's demand for blanket immunity from future prosecution. Weiss, whose new special counsel status gives him greater autonomy in the probe, says he plans to indict Hunter Biden on the tax charges, with his office filing court papers on August 11th, indicating that they had reached an impasse over the proposed plea deal. Weiss could also use his authority to bring additional charges in the case, such as a potential violation of the Foreign Agents Restriction Act, which requires lobbyists for foreign governments or companies to disclose their assistance to the Justice Department. And of course, all of these uh, tax fraud allegations come from the work that Hunter Biden did with Ukrainian uh, energy companies uh, and other foreign groups um, while he was a, a private as, as a private citizen, but as the son of the former president. And Republicans, of course, are, of course, are accusing Hunter Biden of using his father to influence and gain concessions from these different companies. So at the moment, it's unclear how Weiss will proceed, but the standoff likely ensures that Hunter Biden will remain under scrutiny as this reelection campaign for Joe Biden continues. 
That's the news you need to know from the debrief this week. Now let's get to our first of two deep dives this week. One of the events that we were covering last weekend for CBN News was the Iowa State Fair. There was so much going on with so many Republican candidates there and didn't get as much publicity. Democratic candidates there not named Joe Biden. And uh, we were there. White House correspondent for CBN News, Abigail Robertson, was there. And uh, she's been filing stories on everything that she saw there uh, during the course of this week. And so she's joining us here on the D.C. Debrief to talk about her experiences, what, uh, what, what she saw while she was there, some of the vibes that she was getting while she was at the Iowa State Fair. Abby, welcome to the DC Debrief. How are you? Great. Thanks for having me on. First question, how hot and uncomfortable was it? Oh, you have no idea. <laughs> I was melting. I just, it was it was so hot. <laughs> yeah, it looked like it. It looked it looked unpleasant to be there in person in that in that hot Iowa sun. I mean, I don't know what the humidity's like in the Midwest, but uh, it just it didn't look like a comfortable place to be. Yes, we filmed all of our stand up right out the gate because I told our crew, I was like, my face is literally going to melt off <laughs> don't do this at the start of the day. So that was always our game plan. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, the Iowa State Fair is, a, is actually is obviously a multi-day affair. It goes on for a while. Uh, and this is every time there's a presidential election, this is a hot spot because, as of course, we all know, the Iowa caucuses are first up here uh, early next year. And so Republican candidates who are trying to fight for Donald Trump, really, it's a battle for second place, isn't it? Because Trump is going to run away with it there. Uh, he he ended up showing up over the course of the weekend. Um, a little bit of a dig at Ron DeSantis by bringing his Florida a delegation that is supporting him to the Iowa State Fair. Your conversations with people there, how strong is the support for Donald Trump? So, John, I, I'm going to have to start by correcting you when you said Trump is going to run away with it there. And yes, that is what polls are showing right now. But I would say the most shocking part of the trip is that was not at all what we heard from voters and what we heard on the ground. And I oh. was just walking around the fair interviewing people completely at random. So my first question would be, are you a, you know, would you consider yourself a Republican, a Democrat or an independent? Um, and then from there, I would ask a series of questions to these people. And what was fascinating is um, with the Republican candidate, with the Republican voters I was speaking to, I mean, we, I couldn't even tell you how many interviews we did and both, you know, not everyone wanted to talk on camera, mm. but I only found one person who is dead set on voting for Trump in the next election. Really? And that was shocking because if you look at the polls right now, um, one of the latest polls, he's at 41% in Iowa. Oh, excuse me, 43%. That means he's about 26 points higher than Ron DeSantis, who's number two in Iowa right now. He So by that number, I mean, it, it should be almost half the people or at least a third of the people should have been um, very strong Trump supporters that I was speaking to. And that was not the case. And I would also say the people I was talking to all, for the Republican voters, almost every single one of them said, I voted for Trump the past two elections. Many of them even told me that they like President Trump, but they have very serious concerns. The number one thing I kept hearing, though I kept hearing the word baggage and I kept hearing the word electability. And they are very concerned that Trump is not going to win a general election. So I kept, I would say the third word, undecided. So wow. these are people, they, um, Iowa, they, Iowa voters, they're 
the first in the nation caucus. Normally, it's for both Republicans and, and Democrats. The Democrat they the Democrats are moving their um, caucus schedule, so Iowa is actually not going to be first. It's going to be South Carolina in February. But Republicans are going to the first time we'll kind of see just an official gauge of where Republican voters are with these GOP primary candidates is going to be the Iowa caucus mid-January. They take their role, Iowans take their role very seriously. They are informed voters. They actually take advantage of the fact that all these candidates are coming through. And even whether or not they actively want to go hear the candidates, um, you know, we <laughs> went to church on Sunday and I just heard someone say, you know, I was at this teeny tiny festival and one of the candidates showed up. So even <laughs> if they're not actively pursuing going to hear them, these candidates are finding any event and all events just to go and talk to voters. They completely blitz the state. A lot of them have pledged to go to all 99 counties mm. in Iowa. Um, so they they know these candidates very well by the time they vote in January. Um, and it was incredibly interesting that they are there. What I saw on the ground does not support the margin that Trump currently has in the Iowa polls. That's fascinating. And uh, you just, uh, you helped me envision candidates be hiding behind somebody's hedges as they pull in the driveway. <laughs> Surprise! And hey, let me tell you why you should vote for me. Um, but I think one of the interesting things that you just said, and I've seen this elsewhere, the thing that would really... I don't know if scare is the right word, but give the Trump campaign pause are the types of voters that you just talked about, people who voted for him twice, Trump supporters who don't feel like a third vote for Trump is a smart idea. And that they've been able to say some Republicans who the never Trumpers are, are rhinos and, and that there are some Republicans that they target like Mitch McConnell and others who are actively behind the scenes trying to do what they can to prevent Trump from getting another term. But here you have people who have openly supported him, voted for him twice, but are reticent about giving him a third vote. And I have to imagine that those are really the people in the GOP primary, because I imagine it's not just Iowa, that they really need to go after and, and try and convince to give him a third vote. Would you say that that's fair? Yeah. And I talked to one woman and she voted for Trump. She, she told me she likes Trump. She loves his policies. She loved what he did for the country. But she is going to look for someone else in 2024. And she said that it's because she has five children. All of them are conservative. And she says when they sit around the dinner table and they talk politics, that half of her conservative children have a visceral reaction when they bring up Donald Trump. And for that reason, she worries that he will not win a general election. And so she's going to look at someone else to vote for. And another thing I would say, um, more than one voter told me that another one of their concerns with Trump is the tone that he's setting and, and just his tactics. And what we saw around the state fair is the other candidates that were coming, um, frankly, were, were being harassed by Trump supporters. Mm. We, um, there was a crowd following Ron DeSantis and they had cowbells and whistles and they were ringing those cowbells, blowing the whistles during Ron DeSantis's, um, he had a fair side chat with Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds, who's a very popular governor. And after 10 minutes when they wouldn't stop and the people who were just there to listen were visibly very, very angry those pro, I mean, I don't know if you'd call them protesters, but those people with the cowbells and whistles, they were escorted out. Um, they There was a plane that flew overhead that said, be likable, Ron. And then during <laughs> Ron DeSantis's um, 
As he was at the fair, Trump flew his plane around, leading people while DeSantis was flipping pork chops to start chanting, we love Trump, we love Trump. And then around the fair too, Vice President Mike Pence, multiple times, people were yelling traitor at him. And to the same degree, there were also a lot of people, um, the vice president told me, who came up to him and just quietly thanked him for what he did on January 6th. But there were a lot of people sort of following him around, um, yelling at him, taunting him. Nikki Haley, um, while she was speaking from the famous fair soapbox, there were uh, three young men holding a sign that said, eat a corn dog, you coward. Now, granted, I don't know who those people support. One of my um, regrets <laughs> of the fair is that I didn't walk up to them and ask them, you know, who, why they were doing yeah. that, who they were voting for. But there was just a lot of, it was just frankly things that um, people don't, Iowans, they are incredibly nice. One of the reasons I love covering the state fair is a lot of times we, what we call man on the street interviews, they're my least favorite thing to do in the world because one in 10 people say yes. But at the Iowa state fair, nine in 10 say yes. They're very oh. friendly. They're willing to talk to me. And so it's a very kind state, very kind people. And some of these things just weren't sitting well. And and it echoed what voters told me, that there is a tone coming from the top down with Donald Trump that they don't care for. I think you were wise not to engage with the corn dog bros, whoever they may have been supporting. I think you made the right call there, Abby. Um, real quick, before I know you, you had an interview with Mike Pence, and I want to ask you about that real quick. But just uh, for the people... Um, who are, who you spoke to? Did you get a sense that there's any any one non-Trump candidate that maybe was getting the most buzz? People were the most excited about it. Did you find it was kind of spread out amongst all all the other different candidates? It completely spread out. That's okay. the thing. And this is they are a lot of people truly are undecided. And from what I gathered, they really do like a three to four people in the race right now. Okay. So that's going to be the big thing: who can separate themselves from the pack. You did speak with Vice President Mike Pence while you were there as part of a story that you were doing about the evangelical vote in Iowa. Um, what did, it, if anything, did uh, did Vice President Pence say anything that caught your ear? One of the, I think one of the biggest things that stood out to me is he told me that he is well known but not known well. And so he's, you know, has a unique challenge of calling for new leadership in Washington, yet he was one of the leaders. Um, mm -hmm. He was Trump's vice president. So he is going to have a harder time than, say, a Tim Scott or a Ron DeSantis from sort of separating himself and as he's calling for change in Washington. But what he's really trying to do is he what he thinks is almost introducing himself as a candidate for the first time to many voters. It's going to he's going to have a hard time navigating that. But I will say I spoke to somebody, an Iowa voter who went to hear Mike Pence um, during the state fair. And they said that after they listened to him, he they actually are now open to him as a candidate. So as he is campaigning, it does seem that he is um, gaining, you know, changing people's views of him. But he's going to have to, <laughs> he's really going to have to cover a lot of ground um, because there are a lot of people, as I said, calling him a traitor aren't, who don't like him right now. And, and he kind of is tied to um, to his main opponent right now, Donald Trump. Yeah. In, in good ways and, and bad ways. I mean, there's a, the, the never Trumpers who 
uh, don't like the administration will lump Pence into that. And then, of course, there's the, the, the folks who, who want change and don't want anything to, to have to do with that who might like Mike Pence. There's, he's got a lot of work to do, it sounds like, uh, over these uh, next few next few months. R- uh, real quick, lastly, the, there were Democrats who were there. Um, you had you, Marion Williamson uh, was, uh, was speaking there. RFK Jr. was there. They're both challenging President Biden on the Democratic side. Um, President Biden, of course, still with a huge lead. And I, I think it's a foregone conclusion. It's going to be President Biden unless something unforeseen happens. But you're, you were there really just to kind of get a sense of what Democratic voters were thinking as well. What did you find when you listened to them and, and maybe spoke to those uh, those folks? I heard all kinds of takes when it came to Democratic candidates. Um, you know, I heard from one Democratic voter. She is um, a millennial, and she said that she's just upset with her party because she doesn't feel like any of the two people running Marion Williamson or RFK Jr. are serious contenders against Joe Biden, but she's upset that the Democratic Party isn't open to other candidates who might actually be better options for the Democrats. And she, um, you know, she told me that she wished that there was a serious primary. She has concerns about Biden. Oh, and, and I told you that the word baggage was thrown thrown around a lot when people <laughs> describe Trump. Baggage was thrown around a lot when people mm. described Biden. They um, and it was a mix. I will say some people told me some Democratic voters told me that anytime they see anything about Hunter, Hunter Biden, they turn the TV off. They just think it's it's not a real thing. They don't want to hear about it. And that Republicans are just amplifying something that's not real. But other people said, you know, it just seems like right now all of our politicians are corrupt. We should get rid of all of them. Hmm. Um, I will say RFK Jr. He has a real following and he is he has found a niche voter. People who are skeptical about the government's response to COVID, who are skeptical about the vaccines, who just have a lot of questions about the way things were handled in 2020. And these are Democrats and Republicans are going to RFK Jr. I talked to at least three people who were Trump supporters that now support RFK Jr. And on top of that, they're angry at the way President Trump listened to Dr. Fauci during COVID and some of the actions. Um that President Trump took during the pandemic, they're now supporting RFK Jr. RFK Jr., even during his speech, he raises beyond just questions about the vaccine. Um, You know, he had this whole, this whole thing about just some corruption with energy groups coming into Iowa. Um, So he raises a lot of questions about political corruption that is striking a chord with people. And he had a real following, um, people who were lining up ready to see him. He had a massive crowd when he spoke. Um, You know, there were, again, Democratic voters who just said they think he's kind of kind of wackadoo if you will <laughs> um so, yeah. but i do I, there are people who you know i don't i didn't find anyone who necessarily thinks he's going to beat president biden in the primary but there are people who think that he is going to have a lot stronger showing than is expected right now well that's a fascinating side angle to this as we all focus on the republicans but uh some interesting things happening on the democratic side as well and abby's uh doing all sorts of great reporting on all of these stories for us you can find them all at cbnnews.com and also abby is going to be heading to milwaukee next week Mm -hmm. to cover the republican presidential debate the first one and so you can uh, watch her reporting on faith nation and on the 700 club next week as well and uh here on the podcast we'll uh, have some uh, recaps and roundups of uh, abby's reporting from the debate as well. Abby, thank you so much for coming on The Debrief. We really appreciate it. Thank you. 
One of the things we like to do here on the DC Debrief is talk to folks about things that actually affect you. I mean, we could get into the nitty gritty of what's going on in Capitol Hill, leadership change and all that kind of stuff. But a lot of the things that I want to cover here on this podcast are things that you as a listener, you as a viewer uh, might run into. And one of the things that I think we all become victims of, or at least we are the targets of, scammers. We get those text messages. We get emails. We get we get fished and all those different kinds of things. And uh, it's important to know what to look out for and what to do if you are caught up in one of those scams. And joining me to talk about some of the most popular scams going right, right now, Nathan Nash from the Federal Trade Commission. He's a staff attorney. Uh, he's joining us now to talk about consumer scams, what the most popular scams are this year and uh, what to look for. Nathan, thank you for coming on The Debrief. How are you? Good, thanks. How are you? Thank you so much for uh, for having me. Uh, it's it's great to talk to you about this because, like I said, we, we've all been faced with these scams. We all get stuff that looks suspicious in our inbox or, you know, we get stuff on our phones that just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But curiosity gets the best of us sometimes. And you click that link and, and some things can happen. And I was reading that the FTC found that scams cost consumers a little under $9 billion dollars in 2022 alone. So I know you guys are tracking this really closely. What are the top trending consumer scams right now? Yeah, uh, so yes, scams are uh, billions of dollars a year. Uh, consumers lose billions of dollars a year. Um, and we rely on consumers to report the scams to us at reportfraud.ftc.gov. We really rely on that reporting to keep track of what's, um, what's going on and the current trends. Um, we're seeing a number of different scams. Some of them are the same. Some of them are a little new. We do see scams around um, when government benefits or programs are changing. So right now we're seeing kind of an uptick in as states reassess their uh, Medicaid rules coming out of the pandemic. We're seeing scammers impersonate Medicaid agencies to ask people for their personal information. The same with the student loan payments restarting. Scammers will impersonate uh, the student loan companies to get people to share their information, uh, personal information that scammers can then use to, uh, you know, do identity theft um, and take uh, control of people's bank accounts and credit cards and things like that. Um, a constant scam that we're, we've seen in different iterations are impersonation scams, where a scammer will impersonate a relative or a business that someone knows. I get those texts all the time from, you know, Netflix telling me my account has shut down or Amazon and telling me to click a link to enter, you know, my login information for the account. Um, so we're seeing a lot of those and, and increasingly by text as well as calls and, and emails. Um, and the other big category is, is job scams, people asking, scammers asking people to pay money or give up their bank account or social security uh, number to get a job that doesn't exist. And then once they've given uh, the information, you know, they've lost control of that account or lost control of their social security number. So there are a number of different scams. Um, Happy to talk more about it, but um, there there are resources that we uh, put online, like consumer.ftc.gov, where consumers can go and uh, see what the latest trends are and our advice on how to avoid um, falling victim to one of these. I think one of the things you first touched on there is interesting, and I never thought about it this way, but we do oftentimes find major shifts in in policy in Washington, D.C. And as you mentioned, as the government is rolling back some of these pandemic era assistance programs, and you mentioned Medicaid and, and student loans, scammers will oftentimes be very well read and they will know what that they, they will know that people are going to have questions about these kinds of things and they're looking for answers. And 
sometimes a, a person might see something come in their inbox or, or see a text that says, have a question about your Medicaid benefits, click this link. It can be very tempting for someone who has these questions, who maybe doesn't know how to go about getting the answers. If something comes in their inbox, they can say, oh, this is great. Uh, they're, they're actually reaching out to me. But I, I, I imagine that typically that's not the way these agencies will work, is it? No, that's that's right. Often there isn't a call that uh, comes out and asks people to input, you know, their personal information out of the blue. Or even we see sometimes people uh, these scammers will ask for you know an upfront payment for someone to enroll them into Medicaid or see what uh, student loan repayment programs they're eligible for. We also see kind of cyclical with the open enrollment period for health insurance. Um, you know, in the fall we also see scams. You know, I know we're we're coming up on the fall already. Um, so we're, uh, you know, we might see that, but uh, no, and we'd encourage people if they do get these calls or contacts out of the blue, either asking them for information or threatening to, you know, terminate, drop them unless they do X, Y, or Z um, to reach out to, you know, if it's Medicaid to reach out to the state Medicaid agency, if it's a student loan program, you know, look up uh, online to see your student loan servicer and contact them directly rather than relying on whoever is contacting you out of the blue to, you know, be relaying truthful information and to treat your personal information with the trust that it deserves. Well, one of the things uh, that you guys are also keeping an eye on, and I think you mentioned it a second ago, impersonator scams. How can someone spot an impersonator scam and, and what do they look like? Yeah, I think with a lot of these scams, impersonator scams included, uh, there's, um, again, it comes out of the blue often, so it's, it's completely unexpected. Another way to spot it is, you know, sometimes there's there's grammar or, or issues or, you know, names are spelled incorrectly, things like that. Uh, another red flag is the um, urgency. Um, you know, usually it's like act today. You're going to, you know, your account will be shut off today or utilities will be shut off today or something like that. Um, and so we think the best way to avoid that, if there's any doubt, any of those red flags are tripped uh, to reach out to the business directly. You know, if Netflix you know, someone claiming to be Netflix sends you a text saying your account's about to be shut down and you think it might be, you know, and you have questions about its legitimacy, you know, to go and log into your Netflix account, not using the link that they sent you, but, but yeah. going to Netflix separately um, and making sure there's no issue or, you know, calling Netflix um, yourself. Um, but yeah, the red flags are kind of the sense of urgency. It comes out of the blue from a number, you know, that doesn't line up with what, um, you know, the number you usually know Netflix by or that, that uh, company by, um, and then the, uh, the false sense of urgency or kind of catastrophic consequences if you don't act immediately. Um, and the other, sorry, I, uh, the other kind of red flag might be if they ask for payment by cryptocurrency or gift cards or some way, you know, other than just kind of a straight, you know, the way you normally pay through a credit card or cash or debit card or something like I want to run one by you that I've been getting a lot lately, and it's not a scam where somebody's uh, telling me that I need to act now or that uh, I need they, they're openly asking me for money. One, I get them as text messages and I get them as emails. They'll tell me to, th and it's thanking me for a payment that they say I've made, and there'll generally be a link to what looks to be an invoice or an attachment or something, but it'll be for something that I haven't paid. It, I, I didn't make a PayPal payment to some company or some business or um, to some streaming service or whatever. And so the temptation there is to click on it and say, well, what is that all about? But if, of course, you would want to go and look at 
the action, you know, look at your bank account, look at your PayPal, and you can you can see in a trusted source exactly whether or not you actually have paid that money. But again, it can worry people if they if they see something that says um, your payment of six hundred dollars has been processed, your invoice is below. People are going to click on that. What kind of a scam is that? Yeah, I, I'm not totally familiar with that scam, but I guess the the general principles kind of apply. And I think what you said is exactly right to go and look at your payment history, to go and look at something you trust, like a bank account or a credit card statement, to make sure that that payment hasn't uh, been made. And if, if it's a company, to, to go ahead and contact the company uh, directly about it, rather than you know downloading the attachment or something like that. Um, I'm not exactly sure what uh, that scam would be. Sometimes we do see uh, kind of phishing scams where you, if you click an attachment, you can download something that could harm whatever device you're on. So I would just be, you know, cautious about clicking attachments like that, even though they are very, I mean, by design, they're meant to be very tempting. You want to see the invoice that someone's claiming um, yeah. you paid. Um, but if you don't recognize it, probably the, the best solution is, is to try not to click on it, to go and check one of these other sources. And then again, also to, to report it, if you think it's, it's harmful to report fraud.fdc.gov or a state attorney general or, you know, some other type of law enforcement agency. What should someone do if they have fallen victim to a scam and they have paid a scammer? Yeah, I think uh, there are several things. First, again, reporting um, is a great thing, both because it helps us as law enforcement keep track of the trends um, and what scams are active when. Um, also, because, you know, it can help us push out information to consumers to help someone else from falling victim. But I think most immediately for the consumer who's affected, um, if, if you've given personal information to place, um, you know, a credit alert or some type of alert on your um, credit profile to make sure you know if someone's using your information um, in ways that you haven't authorized. Um, if it was money that was sent, um, I would encourage uh, you to uh, contact, you know, if it's by bank transfer to contact the bank, credit card transfer to contact the credit card company. And often if you do that promptly, uh, the charges can hopefully be reversed. Um, and, you know, there are other things. If it's a gift card transfer, maybe contacting the company that gave the gift card and maybe there's a way to salvage the money on there. Again, you know, cryptocurrency and wire transfers are harder, but um, acting promptly is probably the best the best solution um, that, that we can give. And if it's in malware, something where you think you open something that might download something harmful onto your device to look at, um, you know, virus detection or to take it into a, to a um, someone who can repair it or, or check that out. Um, but yeah, I think acting quickly and reporting it, if you can, um, are the two biggest uh, pieces of advice we would give. And how can someone file a report with the FTC? Um, I, you, you mentioned a, a website a second ago. Is that the reportfraud.ftc.gov? That's right. That's right. I don't know if we also have a, <laughs> I should know that. Um, it's not in my notes, but there might be a toll-free number as well. But the easiest way um, for us is that reportfraud.ftc. Um, gov. And the other website I would say is uh, consumer.fdc.gov. That's not to report fraud, but that's where we push out alerts about um, what the latest trends in frauds uh, may be. And you all have access to, can provide access to people for, for these con consumer education resources so that people can get smarter. I know for those of us who work uh, for different companies, we, we go through these yearly exercises about how to detect phishing scams and uh, impersonator scams and all those kinds of things. But for, for folks who don't have a, a job where they, they're required to do that, um, I imagine, is that some place where they can go to kind of just kind of see what the warning signs are and what to avoid? 
Yeah, that's exactly right. We try to put, you know, samples and different descript more detailed descriptions of these types of scams, like what an impersonator scam looks like, what are the companies people are impersonating. Um, so yeah, it's a more detailed uh, description of that, similar to like the, yeah, what you're describing, the job kind of phishing training, what to look at in emails and stuff. So yeah, it's very, very similar, um, but, but good to, yeah, good to refresh on. I was just going to say, so for folks who, who want to get that education, want to get that learning again, go to consumer.ftc.gov. Uh, listen, Nathan, I really appreciate your time on this, and I'm, I'm thankful for the work that the, that the FTC is doing to try and help protect people and keep people educated about scams, because uh, in this digital age of ours, it's not stopping anytime soon. Uh, Nathan Nash with the Federal Trade Commission, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, John. I really appreciate the opportunity. Looking ahead this weekend, radio host Eric Erickson is hosting the annual his annual The Gathering event in Atlanta, where a number of Republican presidential candidates will come and speak. And the Georgia election indictments are certain to be a topic of discussion. Donald Trump will not be there, obviously. Later today, President Biden welcomes the leaders of Japan and South Korea to Camp David for a brief summit where... Undoubtedly, China, North Korea, and other matters sensitive to Asia will be discussed. President Biden and First Lady Jill Biden will visit Maui to meet with first responders, survivors, as well as federal, state, and local officials in the wake of the deadly wildfires. President Biden has been under a lot of scrutiny and under a lot of criticism for a for what Republicans say is a slow reaction uh, to comment to the devastating wildfires taking place in Maui. The president uh, announced additional aid going to Hawaii and spoke about it this week, and he will be heading to Maui next week so that they can see the impacts of the wildfires, uh, the loss of life and land that has occurred there uh, since the wildfires began. And finally, uh, U.S. Joint Chiefs of Staff Chairman Milley will visit Israel next week, where he'll meet with the Israeli Defense Minister and IDF Chief. Chief, uh, This comes after the Biden, Biden administration uh, signaled some concern over Benjamin Netanyahu's judicial reform bill, which has led many in the IDF to suspend their service, as well as widespread protests in the streets. So this visit by General Milley earlier this year was rescheduled uh, following the Wagner, Wagner Rebellion in Russia. He was supposed to go there uh, last month, uh, two months ago, pardon me, uh, but had it postponed once all of that stuff was going down with the, the Wagner Group and, uh, and Vladimir Putin. All right, let's get to the closer. Democratic Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez came out with a TikTok Twitter video this week. I know you may not know where I'm going with this. You may not may not sound like it's something that fits here on this podcast. But like I've said, I want to talk about things and bring things to light that could actually affect you. And in this video, she was sounding an awful lot like a libertarian, specifically on the issue of sunscreen. Again, this is something that affects every American. Every American, I hope, uses sunscreen to some degree. AOC says FDA regulations on sunscreen are far too restrictive and that sunscreen sold in the U.S. is far below the standards in Europe and Asia, meaning we are not getting a product that is that is as protective or good for our skin. FDA is different than the rest of the world in that we regulate sunscreen as a drug instead of a cosmetic. It's regulated as a drug, has far more stringent standards, far more testing, far more scientific and clinical trials that are required, which is good. We want to make sure that yep. things are safe. However, sometimes that can add a lot of bureaucratic and costs that prevent us from getting any sunscreen mm -hmm. filters at all. When we compare the U.S. standards to European standards in 2017, a Sloan-Kettering study found that only half of U.S. sunscreens met 
European protections. The European Union, by comparison, has 27 different compounds for use in sunscreen. The FDA has approved only 17 and none since 1999. AOC proposes a couple of options, allow Americans to have access to European sunscreen or change FDA regulations and categorize sunscreen not as a drug as it currently is, but as a cosmetic. Either way, she's calling for people to talk to their member of Congress about this issue. I mean, after all, anyone who spends time outside, especially during these hot summer months, should be using sunscreen and it should be as good a product as we can possibly get our hands on. All right, folks, that'll do it for this edition of the DC Debrief. Please make sure to tell a friend or family member or anybody else about the podcast. And if you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, again, leave a five-star rating and a review to let me know what you think about the show. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in, and we'll talk to you next week right here on the DC Debrief. Debrief.